Matthew 9, 35-38 says, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning as we look into your word, Father, we just pray that we would get a heart for the people that are around us, that we would see the people as you see them, as people who need a Savior, who need to hear about it, who need a shepherd to guide them to the one who loves them enough to die for them. May you guide every word today. May we hear from your Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, where have we come from? I'm going to tell you about where I've come from in a few minutes, but first I want to set it up by looking at this passage. Because we've, we've come down to the point in Matthew now. We all know Jesus has, has taught this great sermon on the mount. He's going through the villages. He's, he's in, at this point, this comes right after. He's been in his hometown, Capernaum, Keep preaching the gospel, healing people, meeting not just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs. We saw last week that this woman came up to him who, was, who, who, who had this bleeding disorder. The, the, he, other people came up to him, and what they thought they needed was this physical healing, but they recognized him as Messiah, and he gave them so much more than physical healing. He gave them spiritual healing. And that's where verse 35 kind of wraps up what's been going on when it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And so we have this description of what's been going on. And you can imagine that as he's doing this, there's crowds and crowds of people who have come and gone and have seen him do these things. And so he's always around people. Jesus's ministry, as much as we see, we do see him pull away. We do see him go into these times of prayer by himself with his father, with his disciples. But ultimately, when he looked around and when he walked through the streets and he saw people's needs, it was about seeing people where they were at and meeting their deepest needs physically, but then ultimately spiritually. And so that's where we come And then we find out what's going on as Jesus really looks at people. We get a taste inside of Jesus' mind. And it says in verse 36, as we see the first metaphor that's used here, it says, seeing the people, he, Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, he's going to use two metaphors in these very short verses that describe the way that Jesus saw the people that came to him. And, I'm, and, and just to basically tell you where, what I think this is saying for each one of us is that we need to be seeing people the same way that Jesus saw them. And we need to feel the same call on our life that Jesus was giving to his disciples as he said this to meet those people where they're at. And so Jesus saw the people and it says he felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Distressed and dispirited here, um, 
is one of those words that it, when they translate it from Greek, it, just, it doesn't necessarily have an exact equivalent in English all the time, but it could mean as much, it could mean a, a lack of direction, exhausted, dispirited, they were oppressed. And so as he looks at these people, you get this picture of, of just like that picture of these sheep just kind of wandering around. They, they don't have a much of a purpose. They don't know where they're going. You have to remember the people he's looking at, though. He's in the city of Capernaum. And I, I picture an area that's kind of like what we live in. That we look out into a world, and there's people that on the surface, they think they have it all together. And so they, they're all about, you know, they have the good job. They have the nice house. They have the nice car. They've gone to the right schools. They've done the right things. And so, they, but yet, when we look through Jesus' eyes... I don't think he was looking here at crowds of people that were hopeless and poor and everything else. He was looking at average people who were just working and living their lives and having a job and taking care of their families. And he looked at them and he said, as much as you think you have it together, you're like sheep without a shepherd. you, You don't have no direction in your life. You're exhausted. All you're doing is working and working and working, but you have no purpose for what you're doing. And Jesus looked at them and he said, there was like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's the, this first metaphor is really fascinating because sheep and shepherd is used all throughout the scripture. You go all the way back to the Old Testament and all through it, you're going to find over and over and over this metaphor being used of picturing people as sheep. And then you'll see the people who are leading them pictured as shepherds or in the case uh, m- many times of God himself being like a shepherd to us. And... Um, and now, sheep generally in the scripture are pictured as being dumb. Now, for any of you who raise sheep and animals, that's not necessarily what they... I mean, we know that sheep can live in herds by themselves up in mountains without shepherds. There's wild sheep herds in Colorado and other places. Um, but generally speaking, if you're going to get something good out of that sheep for food or for wool or for anything else... It requires someone to lead it around. And so the scripture always pictures sheep kind of in the negative way. And, and if you think about it, it's kind of negative towards us because it's saying that we are like these sheep, that we are dumb creatures who, who just kind of flounder around with no purpose and no, no sense of why we're here and where we're going and what, we're, what our purpose is here for. And so he's, that's the way sheep are pictured in the Bible. Even now... We've kind of come into our modern day English and what do we, you know, if we want to negatively talk about the other political side and, and say that, you know, talk about how blindly they're following a leader, what do we call them? They're sheeple because they just blindly go and follow their leader. They have no sense of their own and they're kind of dumb creatures. So we make fun of the other side by calling them sheeple. It's, it's kind of just a natural part of our language. How then does the Bible look at the shepherd? The shepherd doesn't have the same bad rap. In fact, it's interesting that if you look at the Old Testament, many of the characters in the Old Testament that we look up to, that God has placed as examples for us, David, Abraham, um, uh, uh, Moses, all of these people in their early lives are shepherds. David wasn't found living in the king's house 
wearing the best suit of clothes, eating at the king's table, and wearing a crown on his head because he's the crown prince of Israel. He was found on the backside of a desert, the youngest of his brothers, and yet God came through the prophet to him and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And David's like, I'm a shepherd boy who just takes care of sheep in the back of the hills. But yet the shepherd is always pictured as being this servant leader who ultimately is the one that God places in charge. And it's interesting that when you come into the New Testament, the shepherd is always, is, is I believe, the primary picture of what a pastor is supposed to be. Um, there's a lot of other words they use for pastor. Bishop, which carries the kind of connotation of ruler. Um, there, there's the elder picture. But ultimately, when Paul and Peter and others write about what it means to pastor people, to pastor a church, the word pastor literally carries the connotation, the idea, the definition, really, of being a shepherd. And that shepherding leadership is supposed to be in the humble servant context of the way that Jesus exemplified it. If you go back to Psalm 23, we have the picture of the perfect shepherd in God himself. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the ultimate picture of what it means to be a shepherd. God who guides us through our life and who cares about us even when we're going through the hardest places that he'll ever lead us in. And so that's the first metaphor in here. That Jesus looks out at these people and says, I need someone who will see these people the way I see them and who will go into that population of sheep and will lovingly, humbly care for them and lead them. And we're leading them to know the love of a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is willing to come down to earth and place his life on a cross to die for my, my sins and your sins and their sins. Then he moves on to the second metaphor from there. Now he, st- he turns to his disciples and he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, this is the second metaphor. He goes from sheep and he turns it into harvest, both kind of a farming or a a country motif there, we might say. And at that time, there was plenty of farmland all around Israel. So they all understood what farmland was. It's not like today where most kids probably grow up, um, unless they live out maybe out here in Valley Center. uh, They don't know that wheat grows up out of a field and you have to actually wait for it to get ripe and then cut it and then turn it into into, into, um, uh, flour and then turn it into bread. But at that time, they all understood where it came from. The second picture here is actually from um, the fields outside of, of Jerusalem and in the surrounding area that even today are there. And, and so they understood that, that as the, you couldn't, the field would have to ripen and it would start off green. And then as it, as, it, as it dried out, now when Jesus is looking out over there, maybe even there were fields there and he's looking out and, and they're seeing fields that are ready for harvesting. 
Now here's the problem though. Those fields don't get harvested by themselves. Someone has to go into those fields and harvest them and pick whatever it is. If it's fruit, you go pick it. If it's, if it's wheat, you go use it. You know, at that time, they use a sickle or whatever. Um, whatever it is, you have to have people out there to do it or else what happens? It doesn't just hop on your plate. It goes bad. It goes to waste. It lies fallow. And so in this metaphor, Jesus is saying, look, these people that are out there like sheep, they're like a harvest that's ready to be picked but I need people to go pick it. And then it's fascinating to me that as he's speaking to his disciples here, people who literally, what's going to happen is this is setting up to go into chapter 10 where Gunner's going to lead us through and we're going to see in chapter 10 that Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out into the, the areas around them and to share the good news that the Messiah has come, that Jesus has come. He's, he, that's where he's headed with this, but yet... He doesn't tell his disciples here, look at the harvest, and the answer to that is go out in the harvest and do something. The answer to it is pray, beseech, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest. But here's the unique thing, and this is where I found myself for the last year, is when you begin to pray about that harvest field, when you begin to pray for the people in your area that you see that don't know Jesus Christ, what happens is many times when you pray, you find yourself called. And so I'm going to go into sharing my testimony of how this applies, but I want you to remember this, that no matter where we find ourselves, whether you look out your front door and you see the, the beauty that is here in Valley Center. And maybe, you know, a lot of you live up kind of on the hills around here. And you can look around Valley Center and you can walk out of your front door and you see these beautiful panoramic views of the valley and the mountains. Um, I know Faye Pentecost is in the 830 service. She always puts out these beautiful pictures from her front door and back her patio every day. But all of those places and are, are where people live. And Jesus doesn't want us to just look at it and move on. He wants us to see people. He wants us to see them the way that he sees them, as people who need the message of hope that each of us can bring who know Jesus Christ. And he wants us to pray for those people. And what happens is as you pray for them, and as you pray that the Lord's going to send someone, many times you'll look down and realize that, hey, wait a minute, I'm the person he put here who lives right next to this person who needs to know about Jesus. And you start to realize that you're the one that's called into that harvest field. So I think it's, a, it's, it's very telling that the very next chapter, Jesus is going to turn to his disciples and go, now I'm sending you out into this harvest field. It's also interesting to me that it's not our job to create this harvest. Now, we have a garden. I've talked about it a few times. And, and uh, we can do everything perfectly right in our garden. We can till it. We can do all this other stuff. But ultimately, I cannot force one tomato to come out of a vine. I talked about my passion fruit vine several weeks ago that, the, that, that you know, we did everything right for. And it's a beautiful green vine that does absolutely nothing for me because it doesn't give me passion fruits. So it's a worthless vine to me, except for causing me more work. Um, and, but I can tell you that Beth like babies her plants. So this plant is well taken care of. But ultimately, God's the one who brings the, the harvest. And ultimately, when we look out at those fields around us, the great thing is God doesn't tell you to go out in the field and create this harvest for him. 
He says, go out in the field because it's already ripe and all you have to do is pick it. We're not called to create Christians. We're simply called to shepherd people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, if someone rejects, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting Jesus. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, this this concept of being a worker in the harvest is constantly being put out there as what Christ has called us to. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 9, it says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants in the water and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. He is not calling you to be Billy Graham. He's calling you to see people for where they're at, to go out into his harvest field with the message and the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring. Now, how is this applied to what me and Beth and I have been kind of struggling with and praying for and ultimately believe God is leading us to over the last year? Um, so, I ran across this in my Facebook feed about, um, it was back in July, obviously. So, you know, on Facebook, they have all these, you can see posts you put up like several years ago. And all of a sudden, back in July, on July 10th, I, uh, I was, it, Facebook came up and said, hey, you have a post to look at. And I, was, I, I read that, and um, it just really struck me. This was where I was at in my life uh, exa- almost exactly three years ago uh, from today. Um, I rode in Hong Kong, spending money, eating food, flying back to San Diego in a few days for a month of leave, and then a new command. Can't wait to get home and see Beth Howard. Um, and as I start to think about that, uh, I, I was really moved that way. It was, I was looking at Facebook right before I was reading my Bible and stuff, and the Lord just really spoke to me because the Lord has, brought, uh, has done so much in three years that I can't even imagine. And really, it goes back even further than that. Uh, at that point, three years ago, I was just leaving uh, a place that really fits the description of what I believe that Jesus looked out and saw in the people that he said were a sheep with no shepherd. I had lived in Japan for two years. Um, Beth had come over every time the ship was in port. The ship was gone about six months out of the year. And, uh, and I had lived in Japan for two years in a, in a, in a, in a nation uh, where um, uh, money is really everything, you, uh, where people are, are actually, there's a lot of very well-to-do people. Uh, elect, uh, uh, they're at the cutting edge of technology and everything else but yet it's one of the most Christless nations in the entire world. And, um, and, and yet, and as I was thinking about this, that was what I was leaving. And in my mind, what, what was happening at that point in my life was that I was going to come back to the United States. I was on my way back from being on that tour. I was starting a new command. I got to stay here in San Diego. Beth and I were going to go continue, hopefully praying and and, and trying to have a child, we would have a child, and then uh, continue on in my Navy career, and, and I loved what I did, and God had called me to be a chaplain, I, I was right at like the midpoint, I'd done like 10 years, um, and uh, I didn't always love it, Beth was like shaking her head at me, but um, I, I did love what I did, and, and I felt like that was where God wanted me, well then, 
I get back home, and on my way, literally on my way to my next command, I'm on leave, and I get the results of the promotion board and find out, lo and behold, you, you didn't get promoted. And I'm like, okay, all right. But then I have all my friend, my chaplain friends and all these other people saying, oh, no, no, you're good. You're good. One more year. Just you hit the year zone wrong. You, you'll get it next year. And then God said, nope, that's not the plan. You're not getting promoted. And by the way, the Navy this year isn't keeping anybody who gets passed over. You got to get out of the Navy and then I was like, what is going on? And then God brought me here. And I was like, yes, this is God's plan. I love, and, I, and, I, and what I do want to convey to you, I love Valley Baptist Church. We love Valley Baptist Church. God has put us here for a reason. But it might not have been the reason that I always thought. And, um, and, and so this just kind of struck me as what God has done that has been so incredibly different than what I had planned for my life three years ago. But yet, I wouldn't change a, a minute of it. And really, what, where this goes back to is, um, I, I've said several times in sermons, I think, that the way that I see God's will is always in a rearview mirror. I wish I could tell you, I've had so many people sit with me in an office or just ask me in passing, like, how do you know God's will? How do you know what God is calling you to do? And most people are looking for like that perfect formula and that perfect thing to, okay, well, if I pray right, if I open up this door, you know, God's going to just show me this thing. And I, my, the, more, the longer I live, the more I'm in ministry, the more I can say that it doesn't work that way. For me, I've always been able to look in the, in the, in the past and see that this is how God was working. And really, this all started not three years ago, not one year ago, when God really started dealing with us on this but 12 or 13 years ago. And 12 or 13 years ago, as I found myself, I'm in, we're in South Carolina. Beth and I have been married about seven or eight, six or seven years by then. And, um, and, I, and God has always taken me and said that, uh, and, and everything I ever said, I'm never going to do that. I'm willing to do whatever you want to, Lord, you want me to, Lord, but I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that because I don't like those things. And there's no way you'd ever call me to those things. And yet, every single thing I ever said like that, it's like God said, nope, guess what? You're going to do that. And so I found myself, I graduated from college back in, you know, 97, and then I I'm, I'm, uh, didn't know what to do, and I had always said, I'm never going to be a youth pastor. I, I want to be a ministry, but it's got to be like on a church staff or but it's not going to be a youth pastor. I can't stand teenagers. I don't like them. And um, so then it was like, oh, guess what? You're going to go be a youth pastor for five years. And then I'm like, okay, well, I can do, okay, God's put me here. This is good. I like it. And then, and then lo and behold, that, that started not working out so well. And then I, but I was in seminary and I was finishing up and I always said, I, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve, and I was like, I love the Marine Corps. This is what I want to do, and never go in the Navy. I'd been tried to, the chaplain recruiters tried to recruit me two or three times while I was in seminary. I was like, nope, don't like the Navy. Sorry if you were in the Navy. And I, I just, that's not for me. I want to just be a Marine, and you can keep all that Navy stuff. And then we got into the chaplaincy, and, and, and as Beth will tell you, not everything was wonderful. But for the most part, it was a great job, and I absolutely loved what I did. And for 10 years, I got to... I got to serve in the Navy and, and take care of our country's sailors and Marines as they were deployed around the world in places like Iraq and on a carrier and all over Asia. And it was honestly one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And, and like I said, three years ago, when that slowly, God started slowly closing that door and then slammed it shut, 
I was like, okay, Lord, <laughs> I was really happy doing this, and there's a reason why you brought me here, and I'm pretty good at this, and I like it, and I'm having a lot of opportunities to minister and to share the gospel, so what is going on now? And then God opened a door here at Valley Baptist. Beth and I had been looking, when we moved back to, she had never really left, but we weren't, she was constantly coming and going from Japan, so we hadn't been extremely involved, even though we were members of a church in Escondido. And, but when we got back, I was like, I need to get in a Southern Baptist church. I'm a Southern Baptist chaplain. I literally tried every Southern Baptist church within 20 miles of our house, and it's just nothing really felt right. And then we came to Valley Baptist Church. And literally, it was like God saying, I mean, we even tried another church after this one for a few weeks, and it was like, nope, we need to be up in Valley Center, a place where I lived in Escondido six years before I ever came up here. But yet God led us up here, and we found a family that we love, and we care about, and we feel loved. And, and Gunner, who is an amazing friend, and um, really felt at home here. But then we couldn't shake that God wanted something from us. And, and while we were in Japan, we really did uh, fall in love with Asia. We had an amazing time there. We absolutely love the Japanese people. We love the culture. We love the food. Um, our, yes, it is true. Gunner, Gunner didn't say it this time. He said it first. Our son watches Japanese cartoons. He's learning Japanese through little Japanese counting videos and stuff. There was, a, and we didn't know why, but it just, it clicked with us. And there were, believe me, there's a ton of people I served with who hated every minute of it. Um, but as we began thinking about this and praying about it, Gunner uh, brought a book to me at the end of last year called Radical Together. It's written by David Platt, who's the president of the International Mission Board right now for the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's actually written to pastors. There's another one that's written to the average person called Radical. And, and he and I read it, and it just it, it, it started gripping me in ways I was already thinking about to say that it, it basically you need to be completely sold out for whatever God wants you to do, that you need to be willing to go wherever God's calling you to see whatever God wants you to see and be willing to give up all, the, all of it and go where in, and whatever it is to reach the world for the gospel of Christ. And, um, and that kind of got me started thinking too. And, and then Beth and I started praying about it and thinking about it. And, and lo and behold, I, in my inbox one day, just looking around, some, I, there was a, a church that was in Japan that had come open for a pastor. This was like back at the end of last year, and I just I couldn't get it out of my head that I was supposed to pursue that opportunity. And it had been out there for a while, and I talked to Gunner about it, and I was like, I just don't know. I can't get this out of my head. I literally woke up at night praying about it and thinking about it and couldn't go to sleep. And, and so he was like, well, you know, if you feel the Lord's leading you this way, you need to do it. And so I was like, okay, well, this, just, this once, and I... I sent an email back to the search committee, and turns out the, the actual, they had just found a pastor. And I was like, whew, okay, Lord, I've done what you wanted. I pursued it. It didn't work. That's the end of it. Good. And, and many times that's the way it is. We, God is leading us somewhere, so we take that first and we try it, and then the door closes, and it's like, okay, we've done what we're supposed to do. Whew, we got that out of the way. But that didn't turn out the way it was. I, um, this was right before we had already decided, Gunnar had already talked to us about going to Romania. And um, come January time frame, we really just had decided, like, the Lord is just, we should be pursuing ministry in Asia. We don't know why God is telling us. We've only, we haven't even been here a year yet, but God's telling us we need to do this. And I talked to Gunnar about it. And he was like, let's just pray about it. 
when you get back, see what Romania does for you. And, um, and, uh, and sure enough, so we, we, we were like, okay, we need to start pursuing this, but we will wait. Let's go to Romania. Let's continue to pray for it. And when we got back from Romania, I, I had learned a couple of things. Number one, I learned I'm not called to be a missionary. Um, and, and there is a difference. And the reason I say that is I believe all of us are called to missions, but we've in our culture kind of separated the, the, the missionary vocation from pastor. I don't know that that's necessarily right, but it's what we've done. And, and so for a vocational missionary, their calling is more, as I got to know Chris Guess, what was happening was his calling was really more to help a church get established and then move on and, and start another one and move on and move on and move on. And that's in that culture. And that's not really what I feel called to. I really called to plant myself and disciple people and grow them as a pastor and send them out. And so I knew that God was kind of calling me there, but I still felt this call to Asia. It also opened us up to the possibilities of Europe. And so we started just looking anywhere that we felt the Lord had an opening. And one of the things I did was I put, I sent an email to um, a, a pastor that I knew in Japan who I had worked with, uh, and had, had, we, had got a, we had attended his church while we were in Japan a few times. And um, I just sent an email to him and said, listen, we feel maybe God's calling us to Asia. If you know of any openings, I, I'm not looking to move, but if there's anything you know about, just feel free to tell people that I'm, I'm, available, yeah, I'm thinking about it, praying about it. And he got back to me about a week later and said, you know, could we Skype? I really want to talk to you. And um, he, uh, so we Skyped and we talked, and it turns out he, he said, would you be willing to come over here as my associate pastor? And I was like, well, I'll pray for it. And we kept talking, and I brought it up to Gunner, and, and he's like, well, it sounds like if this is where God's wanting, he's going to open up the doors. And sure enough, you know, that's what happened. And, and God, had, God ended up um, making it very clear over the last several months that uh, we're called to the country of Japan to serve primarily in an English-speaking church, but to hopefully have an opportunity through that ministry to go out into Japan and influence it for Christ. During this process, just, just so that you know, I, I kept Gunner in the loop the whole time. We, uh, we ultimately told the church leadership about uh, a, a couple of months ago, just because we were doing some transitioning with Melanie and needed to start to transition things uh, for the church so that we could be prepared when we leave. So that's, that's how God has kind of led us to this point. As Gunnar said, we are going to be basically missionaries out from Valley Baptist Church. In order to work in Japan, my visa, my religious worker visa, has to be sponsored by a church in the United States as well as an organization in Japan that invites us over there. So you are going to be, Valley is our sending church. Both Beth and I are from South Carolina. But um, the more we've lived here and grown here, this is our family. We've lived in Escondido for eight years, which is longer than we've ever lived anywhere before and as a married couple, and um, we've grown to love everyone here, and we've grown to love this place, and you are going to be the church that is our home church, and we're going to um, make attempts to get back to here when we're home. So anyway, that's where we're at as a family. I, wanna, I do want to talk a, a little bit about where we are going, because this ties into how I want to end today, but the field that God has given me a burden for. This, I don't know if you can see this. This is a... Uh, so this is just a little um, a little spreadsheet thing I put together. The uh, just so you get a feel for the nation of Japan, the United States has three hundred about three hundred nineteen million people. Um, out of that, almost half one hundred fifty million people claim to be Protestants in the United States. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean they all really truly know Jesus Christ, but there's one hundred fifty million people who claim to be Protestants. Out of that, I found interesting sixteen million of those. 
5% of the entire United States is actually our denomination. They're Southern Baptists. If you add Catholics into that number, 68,503,000 more of them, you come up with a number of almost 70% of the United States. If you just ask them, are you a Christian? They would tell you they are. That's the country that we live in. Now, obviously, we all know that that doesn't necessarily mean that every person knows Jesus Christ. And you can see the direction our country is going that it doesn't necessarily mean that all those people actually follow Christ in how they live their lives. But that is overwhelmingly, if you want to know the gospel in the United States, you definitely have access to it. And I would say that even those who've rejected Christ have probably heard the gospel at least once in their life. Um, Just for some uh, reference points, in the countries that are around Japan, the nearest neighbors, Korea, has 50 million people, obviously a lot smaller. Nine million of those, though, are Christians. There's 18% believers, and and they're large Presbyterian denominations and very strong believers. Uh, 5.5 million more claim to be Roman Catholic, bringing their total to almost 30% of Koreans who claim the name of Christ. Um, In China... 1.3 billion people, the most populous nation on earth. There's 58 million believers. That is a total of 4%. These numbers are hard to get because China's secretive and they're still kind of a closed country to some degree. But um, there's there's probably about that many, and there's about 9 million more that would claim to be Catholics. At the lowest lowest estimate is about 2.3% of China is Christian, and the highest number puts it at about 5%. Either way, that's a huge number for a country that for 50 years was under communism where Christianity has been completely illegal. Um, You move over to Japan, however. There's 127 million people in Japan. It's roughly, it's, it's less than half the size of the United States, but it's still a fairly large country. And yet in that country, in a nation that has complete freedom to worship God, complete freedom of religion, you can go and spread the gospel all you want and, and start churches. There's only 500,000 Protestant believers in the entire country. Of, that's less than half of 1%. And another 509,000 that would even claim Christ as a, as a Roman Catholic, taking it to a total of still about less than 1%. It's a tiny, tiny percent of people that know Jesus Christ. And that was one thing that I saw as I lived in Japan for two years. Everywhere you look, there's a shrine, there's a temple, there's an there's a, a image of a god. And, and even, if it's only in, even if it's not a real devout religion, everyone, that is who they are as a Japanese person. And so I got to see that there's a, lot, there's a whole population there of people that, just like Jesus said, are as sheep with no shepherd. That they may on the outside be living their lives as these, in a perfectly contented way, but yet they've never understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, or in, 90, in, in the vast majority of cases have never even heard the first presentation of the gospel. And that's how, how the Lord, I really feel, has burdened my heart for it. Now, where are we going? So this is Japan, obviously. This is uh, Tokyo up there. Yokohama's right below it. We're going to be going to Yokohama. Um, this is uh, Yokohama International Baptist Church. The way we got familiar with it is Beth and I stayed right over here. This is where we used to have a United States Navy base. Um, it's now closed, um, but there was, a, uh, there was a temporary lodging facility we used to stay in, and we walk right across the field. It's about a four-mile run around the field. Uh, over here to, to YABC for church on Sundays when I wasn't working. And then uh, 
And then this is the actual church. The church was built back in the 40s. They, uh, in, after World War II, the uh, United States had a huge presence in Japan uh, as an occupation force. We sent tons and tons of sailors, marines, and soldiers over there. And so as a result, the Southern Baptist, as well as every other missions group in the world, actually went there. A lot of them started, just like this one, an English-speaking church right near a base to provide for the service members' needs. Um, and the great thing about English, if, you, if you've never been outside the United States, you wouldn't understand it, but English is a universal language. I've been in most Asian countries, and, and it's not universally true, but you can usually get around if you know some English. Uh, if you're from another country, and it, you're, it's going to be hit or miss unless you're in a city like Tokyo where there's 15, 20 different languages. But in most places, you're going to have a harder time. But if you know English, you can get around. And, um, and so English is a universal language, and especially with people coming from all over the world, the international church is a great way to reach those people with the gospel. But then you reach them with the gospel in the English language so they can then put that into their native tongue and go out into their communities where they live. It's a way to reach out really into a worldwide way. And that's where I really believe that God is calling us. That's the church we're going to. We're excited about that. The area we're going to be working and living in is Yokohama. This is, um, this is a picture from Landmark Tower in Yokohama. The, uh, Yokohama is the second largest city in Japan. There are 3.7 million people in a 168-square-mile radius. Just to compare that to San Diego, San Diego County, that's the entire county, has th only 3.1 million people. And the size of only the city area of San Diego is almost twice as large as Yokohama. It has 372 square miles. So you're fitting a lot more people in a lot smaller area. It is a big, huge, modern, bustling, beautiful city. So anyway, that's Yokohama. This is from the park area that's down near the water. Um, this is like their main business tourist area, Minato Marai. This, uh, it is a modern city that has a lot of corporations that are headquartered there. This is the Nissan building. They own a large corporate presence there, and uh, you can go in there, and they make all their Nissan. They don't make the cars there, but you can see all of their cars that are uh, the new designs there. The city is also made up of uh, a large Chinatown, and unlike most Chinatowns in San Francisco and, and in L.A. and stuff, this Chinatown has retained a lot of its Chinese influence. Um, this is one of the temples that's there. Uh, when you walk through it, uh, the Chinatown, just like in L.A., is marked by the huge Tory gate. Uh, I don't know if they're called Tory gates in Chinese, but they're, uh, they're marked by the huge, uh, colorful gates. And there's been many generations of Chinese people who've immigrated to Japan, and they all live, uh, mo uh, many of them live there in Yokohama. This is a, an Italian-style house, and there's a large neighborhood of these because Yokohama has also been a government area for the last... Uh, the last 100, 150 years, right after Japan was opened uh, by Admiral Perry in the, uh, in the United States, this is where most of the government officials from Italy and from Europe and other places would come over, and Italian craftsmen came up and built large neighborhoods up in uh, Yokohama. The, um, they also have everything that every other modern city would have. They have a, they have a, a major league uh, ballpark. The Yokohama Bay Stars, yes, I actually went to a game. I took these pictures, and uh, it's a lot more interesting than an uh, American baseball game. So anyway, and it's a lot cheaper than going to a Padres game. But unfortunately, this is the picture that, um, and, and it's beautiful. It is a beautiful picture, but what this represents 
is the religion that most people in Yokohama, as well as pretty much the rest of Japan, will follow. And that's a mix of Shinto and Buddhism. Um, Shinto uh, is obvious, is um, based on emperor worship, uh, but it's mixed with a lot of Buddhism. Um, it's said that uh, Japanese are Shinto in life, but Buddhist in death, because Buddhism will give them more, um, more hope, I guess, for the future, uh, whereas Shinto is kind of a hopeless religion after death. Uh, you just remain as a kami, a spirit that just kind of wanders around endlessly and with no hope of, of coming back time after time like Buddhism gives. So they, uh, this is actually from Kamakura, but um, everywhere in Yokohama you can find temples like this uh, in many different places. And, and, and so this represents what the majority of Japanese, if they have any religion at all, this is what they believe. And so these are all over the country and that's the mission field that God has given me eyes for. And just as Jesus was out in his country, and when he looked out, he probably saw things like this too. And, and, and he saw, you know, this is another religious, these are the Tory gates at a shrine. Um, and ultimately, though, you, hopefully you recognize this as not being Japan. This is what you see when you look out of your door. Um, or near your door every day. This is Valley Center, California. And while once we move to Japan, what we see out of our front door may be different than this view that you see. What I, what, what I hope that each one of us sees is the same thing Jesus did. He didn't look out and see the beautiful scenery and see the sky and see the beauty around him. He looked and he saw what each one of those houses there represents. He saw people. He saw people that, he said, were sheep that didn't have a shepherd. And the people he saw weren't even non-religious people. They were very religious people. They were people who went to the synagogue every week. They were people who followed the fast days, the feast days. They were the people who looked up to their religious leaders. And Jesus looked at those people and said, they're sheep who don't have a shepherd. They're a field that is ready for harvest. Pray what God is going to do in your life and others to go into that harvest and tell people about Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, and I hope, that what you take away from this today is not that we're leaving. Because <laughs> we love you, and we are not looking forward to that part of it. But what we are looking forward to is being in the area where God has called us to be able to see the people that God has called us to and be able to make a difference where God has placed us. And while our view that we see every night may look more like that, and the view that you see every day and every morning when you walk out of the house may look more like the previous picture, every one of those views is representing thousands of people who are dying and going to hell because they don't have a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is willing to come down to earth and live an absolutely perfect life and die on a cross in your place and my place to take our sin. And I pray that each one of us will pray that the Lord will send us into our harvest field, whether it's in Valley Center, California, or Yokohama, Japan, and that each one of us will see how God is going to use us to be the shepherd, to be the farmer who's going to reap the harvest for, that he has in his harvest fields right here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... Um, we give you the praise for how you lead in each one of our lives. We're so thankful that you have called us to the missions 
to the um, to the being a part of what you're doing in this world, Lord. You haven't called us to to go out and 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 create wealth. You haven't called us to go out and and, and simply just live a life of, per, of of no purpose, Lord. But you have called us as workers into your harvest. And Lord, you, we pray that you would give us eyes for the people that are around us, that we would care about each one of them as an individual who needs to know Jesus Christ. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise today in Christ's name. Amen.